Father, as we come to your word today, uh, we'll be reminded as we go through it that sometimes, uh, because parts of your word were written a long time ago, they seem uh, very different to us. But we just pray that you'll help us to hear you speaking through it all, that we might come to see the message that you have that hasn't really changed. Those specific details might be different between now and Old Testament times. We pray that you will help us to see your love, your justice, your mercy. Uh, help us to understand it all afresh and be moved by it afresh as we look at it in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we started a new series in the book of Habakkuk, which is one, that's one of those tiny little prophets in the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long. And we looked at this uh, question Habakkuk was having. He was wrestling with all of the injustice that he was seeing in his nation of Judah and how corrupt judges went on judging corruptly and nothing happened and corrupt rulers took bribes and, you know, gave to those who would give to them and, uh, you know, the poor and the oppressed and the marginalised got nothing, no justice uh, in Israel, in Judah in those days. We saw that um, Habakkuk was wrestling with that and saying, God, why isn't there justice? Why aren't you bringing punishment on those who do bad things? And God's answer to him was, be patient. I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to bring justice on those who are doing wrong things in Judah. And to do that, I'm raising up Babylon. And we pick up the, uh, in the book of Habakkuk there as Habakkuk is essentially saying, but, but, but Babylon is even worse. And we'll see that in the words that we look at this morning. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations? I'll stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. 
See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes a trust in his own creation, he makes idols that can't speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There was a lot of stuff in that, a lot of very vivid descriptions, a lot of woe. But what's it all about? As we noted, Habakkuk has been wrestling with this question of the injustice in his society, of the fact that when he looks out around him, it doesn't really look like God is in control. It doesn't look like the wicked are punished. It doesn't look like the righteous are... uh, are blessed. In fact, sometimes it looks a lot like the opposite. And the book of Habakkuk really speaks to those who are suffering injustice and hardship and to those times in our life when things are just not right. Why isn't there justice? Why is the world a mess? And we've seen Habakkuk brings all of his fears and his doubts and he brings them to God. And he's honest and frank to God about these things that he's wrestling with. God, why is this the case? And God's first answer didn't deal with all his doubts. 
And we can sort of understand why. When, he said, when God said, I'm going to punish the wicked in Judah by rising up Babylon, raising up Babylon against them. And as he sort of noted in, in his complaint before God, they're, they're even worse. Why would they be your answer? And so, because he still had questions, Habakkuk continued to wrestle with God. He continued to bring his questions to God and his doubts and his fears to God. Habakkuk recognises the greatness and the goodness of God and that's where he begins, talking about, Lord, are you not from everlasting? You've been there from before the creation of the world. He's immortal. He won't die. That he is too pure to look on evil, that God is good, that he doesn't... The evil in our world is not explained by the fact that God is evil and so all the evil happens because that's what God chose to happen, what God God wants to happen. We know that God doesn't delight in evil. And so he's still wrestling with, well, if all of that is the case, why is the world like this? If you are all-powerful and if you are good, what's with all this? Why, why would you pick the Babylonians of all people to bring justice, uh, to, to bring judgment on Judah? And he gives this picture of you've made the people like the fish in the sea. It's, you know, it's just, you know, the, the strongest survive, the, the big eat the small. And then he uses this picture of the Babylonians. They're not even like fish. They're like Fishermen coming in on their boats. What chance has a fish got against a guy who doesn't even have to get out of his boat to catch them? How is this just? How is this fair? Is it just in this world that might makes right and that only the strong survive? We know that God is raising up the Babylonians to punish Judah for breaking their covenant with him, for breaking the promises that they had made, that they would be God's people and he would be their God. He's raising them up because of their injustices and their evil towards one another, but Babylon was not remotely God-fearing. And Habakkuk captures captures this in his complaint in very poetic terms. He talks about them... You know, they, they're fishermen using their nets to catch all the nations and so they make sacrifices and they worship their nets because the nets are what makes their life good. Now, you know, the people of Babylon didn't actually worship nets, they, they worship their gods, but it's that picture of them, um, they're not worshipping God, they're worshipping the things that make their life good. This is not a good and righteous people. It would be like if we look around at all the injustice in Australia and all of the corruption and all of the problems that are happening and we say, God, why are you allowing all of this to happen? Why are you allowing the good to go unpunished? And he said to us, well, it's okay. I'm raising up China to bring punishment on Australia for all that they've done wrong. I think our response would be a lot like Habakkuk's. But, but, like, we're not good, but you know, they've got concentration camps full of, full of the, these minority groups and they've got all of, 
the, the corruption is even worse and the problems, that would kind of be our gut response, wouldn't it? Or to put it in another way, because it wasn't really just about their nation. It wasn't just about nations, but that God was bringing judgment on the people who were supposed to be his people. And it would be like, you know, I was saying, God, what's with all of the problems in the church? What's with, you know, all the um, child predators that have been in the church? What's with all of these terrible things that have been done in your name in the churches around the world? And God said, it's okay, I'm, well, who's, who's the biggest bugbear for all? It's okay, I'm raising up the, the Muslims, I'm raising up Islam to bring punishment on the churches. And you would say, but, 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 I mean, we've been bad, but is that, is that just? Is that right? Now, I'm not trying to, to throw stones at anybody with that, but I'm trying to th- help us think about this is how the people of Judah, the righteous people in Judah would have felt, how Habakkuk would have felt when he got this message from God. And I think in those terms we can understand Habakkuk's confusion and his doubt. Why would this be the right way? And what I love is that God has made this part of his word to us. He's made Habakkuk's questions and his wrestling and his doubts part of God's word to us because God is then, by putting this in his word to us, he's inviting us to ask our questions, to wrestle with him, to take all of the things in the world that we can't make sense of and to bring them to him. It's okay for us to keep asking questions and to keep wrestling with God as we try and make sense of the world that we are living. And again, we see that God answers Habakkuk's cry. He answers his question. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet and God spoke to him. If we wrestle with him, we're most likely not going to get an audible voice telling you this is the exact answer. Uh, God speaks to us these days through his word. But God answers his prophet Habakkuk. And he tells him to write down his answer because he knows Habakkuk will not be the only one who will wrestle with this. And so he says, write this down for everyone. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Now tablets, that's that's a bit old school by the point in history that we've gotten to here. But the the idea there kind of seems to be write it down on something permanent. Something that won't be out, you know, that, that won't be destroyed in a fire, and you know, something that will last. We don't know whether this was a, a literal instruction. We don't know whether Habakkuk uh, actually went and carved a tablet with these things on it. Maybe he did, but the idea seems to be: here is something you need that a promise that you need on something durable. Here is something that you need to hold on to for the future. Because the day when Babylon would rise and overtake them was, was still many years in the future at this point. They said, here's a promise that you need to hold on to so that when Babylon is you know, crushing all of your cities 
and taking you away into captivity in their lands, that's when you're going to need this. So hold on to it until then. Hold on to this promise. And the promise is that Babylon's greed and their, uh, their warmongering, their bloodshed will be their undoing. That those who flourish and oppress others for a time are arrogant and selfish. The enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by faithfulness. Or as uh, it's paraphrased when Paul quotes it in the New Testament, the righteous will live by faith. That sounds familiar. I think a lot of us have heard that term before, but what does it mean to live by faith? Is that being extra spiritual? You know, somebody who just kind of floats through life and nothing ever bothers them and nothing ever penetrates their bubble and everything is airy all of the time. Is that what it means to live by faith? I think in the context, it's pretty clear that the person who lives by faith is the one that just holds on to these promises. When these promises that God has given to Habakkuk, when their world is falling apart, when everything is going wrong, they trust that what God has promised will happen, will happen. It's somebody who is able to keep their eyes on the big picture when everything's falling in a heap. Who's able to keep their eyes on the future for the things that God has promised them and to hold on to that to keep them going. And the beautiful thing about being those who live by faith is that it frees us from having to fix it all. We live in a world that is full of brokenness and it's good for us to fix what we can. But if the whole value of our lives, if if life is only worth living if we can fix it all, we're going to live very frustrated lives because there's a lot out there that is far beyond our ability to fix. And if we live by faith, it means that we can have trust that God will fix it. It's in his hands and we don't need to fix everything ourselves. And we look at the world around us and everybody has a different understanding of what's wrong with the world. So everybody has a different understanding of what's needed to fix the world and then you end up with greater and greater uh, tension and anger and frustration between people because of these competing views about what needs to be done to fix the world. But we can live by faith. We can do our part to fix what is wrong, what is within our power. And then we can leave the rest to God and trust the promises that he's made. How can we live by faith? It's easy to say, well, that's what it looks like. How do we do that? How are we able to hold on to those things? To trust that God will set things right when it looks like everything's a mess. How can we trust that justice will be done when so often it looks like people get away with the hurt that they've caused us? and the troubles that they've done. How did you know when you sat on the chair that you're sitting in now that it would hold you up? 
I didn't see anybody come into church today and sort of gingerly test their chair and put a little bit more weight on it and, and, and then eventually like sort of put, lean their foot on it and, oh, okay, it's probably okay, I'll, I'll sit down on it and I can trust this chair. Maybe you did that and I just didn't see it, but I don't think anybody did that. Nobody felt the need to do that because every other time you've sat on one of these chairs, they held. They've sort of proved that they were trustworthy over time. Now, if every second chair you sat in collapsed, you would test every chair like I was just talking about, wouldn't you? You'd be wanting, you'd be wanting, uh, you'd want to be pretty sure that you could trust it before you sat on it. But if over time these things have proven that you can trust them, you don't need to do that. You just, you just come in, you sit down, you don't even think about whether the chair will hold you up. The Bible gives a similar answer to why we should trust God, that he will do the right thing, that he will bring justice, that he will fix things. Is because every time he's promised to do something, he's done it. When he promised that he would free Israel from Egypt, he did it. When he promised he would lead them to their land, he did it. When he promised he would send them the Messiah, a, special, a king who would bring peace with God, he did it. When he promised that there would be a day where their sins could be taken away, he did it by sending Jesus. And so when God has told us and promised us that he will bring justice, that he will fix the brokenness in our lives and in our world. We trust that he can do it for the same reason you trusted your chair when you sat down, because he hasn't failed you yet. He hasn't failed in his promises yet, and we trust that he won't. He's always brought justice and salvation just as he promised. But in every generation, people have had to wait. Before God saved them from Egypt, they had to spend hundreds of years there. They had to wait thousands of years for Jesus. We've had to wait thousands of years since Jesus. Waiting's always been part of the pattern. And in that time of waiting, it's fine for us to bring our doubts and our struggles and wrestle with God. But we can trust that this isn't any different to the other times when people had to wait. And just as God did what he would, said he would do then, he'll do it for us now. We wait now on his promises that one day Christ will return. That sin, that death, that sickness and pain will all be no more. That everyone who believes in Jesus will be with God forever. We wait on his promises that the righteous will live by faith. And as, uh, as Paul put it in Romans, for the in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just, it is, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul quite liked Habakkuk. He quoted that there and then he quotes it again in Galatians chapter 3. 
Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. It's what God has done for us, the way that God has made that we can be forgiven, that we can have hope of a life beyond this one where the injustices and the brokenness are taken away and all things are made new as they should be. Our hope for that is not ever that we have been good enough, that we've done enough good things. Our hope is that we have been saved by grace. We've been saved because God chose to show us mercy, not because we earn mercy. And then we can receive that grace that he has shown us by faith. That if we believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, God's chosen king, And more than that, God the Son. If we believe that he died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, and if we believe that that is enough, that what he did was enough, if we believe that he will come back like he's promised and make all things new like he's promised, that's what it looks like to live by faith. That's our stone tablet to hold on to when, not so much when Babylon conquers us, but when our world falls apart and when everything goes wrong. And living by faith doesn't mean that things won't go wrong, but that we'll have that to hold on to when it does. So we look forward to the day when God makes all things new. And God called Habakkuk to look forward to the justice that he would bring. And when God was speaking about the justice he would bring to Babylon, he put these five woes uh, in the mouths of the people who had been conquered. So this, God expresses it uh, in this way. Will not all of them, all of the nations that were caught up by Babylon, taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, and then he goes into these woes, these proclamations of judgment against Babylon for what they will do. And he gave these to Habakkuk because he knew the people of Israel would need this while they were being preyed upon by the Babylonians. That they would be able to hold on to these things and say, we know their time is coming. We know God is not ignoring the evil that they're doing. The way they shed the blood of other nations. The way they extort their neighbours. They steal what isn't theirs. The way they violate their neighbours around them. God isn't blind to it. God isn't pretending it isn't happening and turning his back. But God has promised that there will be consequences for what they're doing. And he caps off these woes with the condemnation of their idolatry, that they worship that which isn't a God, but is just something that they've made. And as I said, God gave this message to Habakkuk to give his people hope in a hard time. Because for a season, Babylon would seem all-powerful and their injustices against Judah would seem to be done with impunity. But God was not powerless before Babylon and he'd promised them that he would hold them to account. Now the Bible is clear in the New Testament that we too have an enemy. That enemy is not Babylon. That enemy is not China. That enemy is not Islam. 
That enemy is not the left or the right. The enemy goes by many names. The devil, the accuser, Satan. The devil is the one who first rejected God's authority. The devil is the one who first went his own way. And he prowls this world bringing injustice wherever he goes. He brought the brokenness into this world and he spreads it with him wherever he goes. He brings trouble against God's people seemingly with impunity at times. Sickness and brokenness and breakdowns of relationship. But woe to him because his time is short. And I can say that not because you know, God spoke to me and gave me a special message like he did with Habakkuk, but because he told us through Jesus that the enemy's time is short, that his days are numbered. It tells us that the fate of the devil is not like in the popular culture where he rules over hell and he you know, torments people who are in there. No, that's his fate, that he gets thrown in there to suffer that he gets thrown in there to be held accountable for his evil that he's done through all the history of the world. There will be justice. There will be judgment. There will be a day when things are made right. When all of the things that have, the injustices that we've faced will be made right when all of the brokenness will be made new. The hope in your chronic pain, in your loss in your family, in breakdown of relationship, in poor health, in whatever might happen in our world that causes our world to fall apart. The hope in that is that God will deal with this brokenness. He will make all things new. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the picture that God gave to Habakkuk there. In the middle of all of these woes is a picture that it's not just going to be an endless cycle of you know, he raises up Babylon to judge Judah and then he raises up Persia to judge Babylon and then he raises up the, the Macedonians to judge Persia and then he raises up the... It's not just going to be an endless cycle of that. But that God will step into his world one day. In a very complete sense, he will deal with the injustice. He will bring punishment and salvation for those two things always seem to come hand in hand in the Bible. And he will make all things new. We look forward to that day. But there's a lot to do before then. Between now and then we live by faith and we reach out to others and call them to do the same. Let's pray.
Father, sometimes we flinch at descriptions of your justice and your judgment. Judgment isn't many people's favourite topic. And yet we know that when injustice is done to us, we long for justice. We long for judgment. It's the only way that things can be made right is if wrongs are punished. But we recognise that each and every one of us have gone wrong, have done wrong. Each and every one of us have gone our own way. We've defied you and we've hurt those around us. But the righteous will live by faith. And we trust, we have faith that what you have promised is true. That for everyone who believes in Jesus, you have given the hope of eternal life. We ask that you will forgive us all of those things that we've done wrong and that you will help us every day to walk by faith, holding on to that promises like that image of that concrete or that stone tablet, something tangible, something to hold on to when everything falls apart. And when we see all the injustice and all of the brokenness in the world around us, we know it will still hurt. But help us not to be overwhelmed. Help us to trust as you've led us us to trust in this word that though injustice may rule for a day, it will not go unpunished forever. But that you will make things right. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.